prone to temptation of romanticizing the past. And I've noticed that this affects young as well as old. Uh, there are no fiercer standard bearers for family tradition, uh, for example, for doing Christmas or spending holidays than the younger members of our family, at least. And that hankering after traditions and set patterns and maybe thinking that the, the old was in some way better affects all kinds of areas of life. Uh, to give another example, uh, an area that's uh, close to my own heart, is the, the, uh, the kind of explosion of interest in community orchards ar around the country just now. And uh, it's great, and quite a number of these have gone down the path of planting exclusively uh, the old heritage varieties, which have got really nice sounding names, and they've got romantic uh, stories of origin, and uh, they are very useful. They're, they're good to, to keep, and they have their place, and so on. But uh, my father once wisely uh, remarked that there's a reason why they are heritage varieties. Uh, and the reason, of course, is that they've been superseded. They've been overtaken by the more modern varieties. And they were used, actually, in breeding programs that led to uh, some of the, the more commercial varieties, which are more tasty, and they keep longer, and they are more attractive-looking. The old varieties had a real part to play. They played their part in introducing these newer ones. But, folks, they've served their purpose. And it would be really crazy to ignore the fact that the new has come and the old has been overtaken. And that's essentially in a much more significant, a much more important realm, the realm of the spiritual, the realm of salvation. That is the case in regard to a priesthood. There was a priesthood which served its function. The line of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood. But the writer to the Hebrews has been warning the people against a nostalgic looking back and attraction to the old way when the new has come, Jesus is here. And his priesthood surpasses and replaces the old one. And it would be crazy to go back to the old. The whole section of Hebrews from chapter 4 verse 14 to the end of chapter 7 has been about the need for a priest. This vital Bible concept that we need a, a bridge builder a priest gives us access to the king. If you wanted to uh, meet the queen, then you could shout at the top of your voice from the gates of Buckingham Palace. Uh, you could try to smuggle yourself in uh, with the laundry. You could do all uh, kinds of different things that might get you uh, into the queen's presence, most of which would probably land you in jail. But if you had... A member of the royal family, maybe a son, uh, who would introduce you, that would be a different matter. And all of the Old Testament drama is telling us that God is holy, we are not, 
God is a consuming fire, as Hebrews will tell us later. We are in danger of being uh, burned up because of our sin. We are flammable because of our sin. We need an intermediary. We need someone to take our place, someone to bring us access, someone to do what is necessary to make it possible for us to meet with God. Because we want to meet with God, because God is holy and just and true and pure and light. And we need to be right with God and meet with God. But only through a priest can we be brought near to God. And all of the priests of the Old Testament were God's way of showing that one day the true priest would come. One who would deal with all of their problems and bring them to God. So, if we pause here, here's an essential biblical truth. The idea of a priest is vital. Jesus' priestly work is central to the way that we need to be thinking as Christians. We have a problem. God's answer is a saviour, Jesus, whose blood atones, whose intercessions keep us. Is that still central to the thinking of Christians? It's interesting how you get these kind of shifts of thinking. And I, I don't know, I don't really know if there's uh, uh, altogether, if this is a copper bottom illustration, but some people have remarked on the the quantity, I don't, don't know how you measure these things, the quantity of times that uh, verses are quoted uh, out there in the media and so on. used to be that the verse that uh, the church evangelists and God's people shared with one another most often was John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Right? Uh, it's a verse which is very clearly talking about Jesus' priestly work, saving us from perishing, bringing us eternal life, the giving of the Son. Uh, uh, it's interesting that they say that that has now been overtaken by another verse. I wonder if you uh, can guess what that other verse is. You go into all the Christian bookshops, and it's on all the towels and bars of soap and everything else uh, that you see there. And it's Jeremiah 29, 11, which is also a great verse in the Bible. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, plans to bless you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. It's a great verse, it's not always expounded in its context, which is the exile in Babylon. But what's interesting is it's a verse which talks about uh, the, the benefit to our lives in terms of, of, of this world and our future and, and so on. Is that a shift from thinking about our need for salvation to thinking about earthly well-being? I'll leave that to you. What is certain is that uh, in the early days of the, the Christian unions on student campuses, uh, you might know that at one time it was the student Christian movement, which was the largest uh, body of, of uh, Christian fellowship. Uh, it's virtually extinct now, but the student Christian movement became very liberal. They drifted away from the Bible. That's why organizations become extinct. And at one point, some of the leaders of the new uh, 
universities and colleges Christian fellowship uh, met up with the leaders of the student Christian movement to see if there was common ground to see if they could actually have a united witness and the question that Christian union leaders asked of the SCM was what place do you give to the blood of Jesus in your thinking and the answer was that we give a place but not a central place and with that answer, uh, these early leaders of today's CU movement decided that uh, there was no way that they could cooperate with uh, people calling themselves Christians who didn't place the atoning work of Christ central in their thinking. We always need to be wary of anything that moves us away from the cross, away from the priestly work of Christ, or anything that would introduce another form of priesthood other than Jesus into our life within the church. Well, the chapter opens with the writer saying, the point of what we are saying is this. It's always kind of refreshing when a preacher uh, does that and says, the point of what we're saying is this. Uh, it enables us to see if we're actually following things. Uh, it enables us to, to see what the, the focus of the sermon is. And what he's saying, his focus is, that the kind of priest he's been talking about in the previous chapter, a new priesthood, which is of the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priesthood, uh, which is greater than that of Aaron. It's not just a, a promise. It's not just potential. It has arrived. We have it. And it is Jesus. And the reality is now in heaven. Jesus is better than the line of Aaron. The old line was a shadow. The reality has come. And it would make no sense to go back to the shadows. So he goes on now in the chapter. And this is how it, uh, how it works out logically. He goes on to... Uh, argue this by showing that Jesus is superior first of all in his ministry uh, as is verses 1 to 6 and then Jesus is superior in the covenant which he introduces so Jesus is superior in his ministry and Jesus is superior in the covenant he introduces first then Jesus is superior to all the old priests of the Aaronic line in his ministry makes two points to show his superiority in his ministry in verses 1 and 2, and then he reinforces that uh, in verses 3 to 6. Jesus' ministry is superior in the position he has taken up and in the reality that he represents. Jesus is superior because he is in heaven. Now, that was against the, the, the way of thinking of, of the, the Hebrews because remember the problem that the letter's addressing is they're tempted to go back to the outward forms of Judaism. And they're attracted to the fact that they have priests that they can see, priests who are in earth. And the writer's saying, the priest that we serve is superior precisely because he is in heaven. 
His work of sacrifice is done. He is now in the very presence of God. And his posture in heaven is significant. He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Jesus has sat down. That was the very thing that the Aaronic priests were not permitted to do. There were no chairs to sit on in the Holy of Holies or the Holy Place. And that was significant because it it underlined the fact that their work was never done. There could be no sitting down and resting because they were making continual sacrifice because they were only shadows of the reality. But our priest, he says, has now sat down. And that indicates both uh, the, the position of victory and also denotes a completed work. His work is done. He, now seats the, he is now seated at the right hand of the, of the, the throne. Jesus' presence in heaven is also a presence at the heart of reality. There is a real tabernacle and there is a copy. And contrary to the way we might think, the real one is in heaven. What the priest served up was just a copy. The tabernacle was representative of God's presence. And that's why if you, if you study in Exodus, uh, the, the detail that's given to the, the tabernacle, the colors of the curtains and everything, it's indicative of, of, of heaven. You know, the, the, the curtains around the, the Holy of Holies were um, made of blue and, and gold yarn. And even the dimensions, you know, the perfect cube symbolizing the perfections of heaven. That's a shadow of reality. That's symbolic. Jesus is now there. He is in the presence of God. He is where the divine decisions are made. He is where God is worshipped face to face by sinless creatures. He is at the heart of the reality. The Levitical priests were only serving remotely at a copy. Who'd prefer to sit by a, a stage prop of a beach scene when they could... Uh, sunbathe at the beach itself who would go back to shadows and types when the reality has come something that struck me is the fact in verse 2 that Jesus is said to serve in the sanctuary the true tabernacle set up by the Lord isn't that amazing that our king, our priest, our prophet uh, whose work is done is yet serving us and we saw that uh, when we were looking at the intercessory work of Jesus as a high priest. He's the king who serves. Prince of Wales, uh, in his uh, kind of, uh, three ostrich feathered, um, whatever you call it, emblem, he has the motto, Ich dien, I serve. What a wonderful motto for royalty. Our king, our, our prophet, our priest, is serving yet at the true tabernacle in the presence of God as he intercedes for his people on earth. Now the argument that follows uh, verse 3 uh, seems to be based on the, the unspoken objection of the people that 
If Jesus was still on earth, then we might appreciate that he's better than the, the Jewish priesthood. But he's not on earth. We can't see him. Verse 4 says, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Writer saying, your thinking is seriously flawed. It would not do for Jesus to be on earth. Uh, it's central, verse 3 says, to the idea of priesthood to make gifts and sacrifices. But if Jesus was on earth, he wouldn't be making gifts and sacrifices. Why? Because he's not, he wasn't, according to the, the human descent, from the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. And the priesthood came from the tribe of Levi. More importantly, those priests who are serving still, uh, and to whom the Hebrews are drawn or attracted, they're only serving a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. It was a copy. God told Moses to be careful uh, to uh, make the tabernacle uh, according to his instructions as a copy of the heavenly one. There'd be no advantage for Jesus to serve on earth because his ministry in heaven is the true one. Jesus did not come to bring us a better kind of shadow. Jesus came to introduce the real thing. His priesthood is what the Old Testament priesthood was pointing to. His priesthood is effective and enduring. He came to bring reality. Jesus' ministry is superior to the ministry of the priest. That's the first point. Second point is Jesus introduces a better covenant than was connected with Aaron and his followers. Now this is, a, I think, most of us would, would admit that the, the, the business of the connection between the old covenant and the new covenant is sometimes confusing. And it's important that we have clarity on that uh, so that we understand, especially understand the role of law in our lives. So, there's a contrast made between uh, the old covenant and a new or second covenant. Problem is there are lots of covenants in the, in the Old Testament. Which covenant is being referred to? There was a covenant made with the earth or with Noah, with Abraham, David and so on. But the one that's spoken of here is the one that was made at Sinai. Uh, verse 9 and, and following makes that clear it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt so it's the covenant that God made with the people uh, through Moses at Mount Sinai and something is said about this old covenant first of all it's a covenant that God made uh, there's a special word uh, that's used here, uh, diatheke, which is used not of a covenant between equals, but a covenant between uh, an overlord and subjects. God uh, is in charge here. God is laying down uh, commandments to be obeyed. It's authoritative. It's got promises for obedience, curses for disobedience. God made this covenant. But secondly, and this is important, it was given in grace. It's a gracious covenant. That's important for us to remember. Uh, although the covenant comes with the requirements 
on the Israelites relating to their life towards God and one another and outsiders. It's not without grace. And uh, the, the way that it is described uh, is beautiful. The context in which the covenant is given is that of redemption from Egypt. Verse 9, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. What a beautiful picture that is of God as the, the great father leading uh, his, uh, his firstborn. Israel is my firstborn son, God said. And God is leading Israel by the hand out of Egypt. And it's to this son, in this context, that God gives the covenant. And it's given in grace as a loving provision from a heavenly father. And that's important for us to, to, to hold on to because if we don't, then the danger is that we set up such a contrast between uh, grace and works in these two covenants that we say that people who are saved by grace uh, have got no, nothing to do with the commandments. That was the old covenant. That was all works and law. But now uh, the, the new covenant is all grace. And there is that contrast, that's contrast made in John 1, but uh, that's not to say that the covenant that was made at Sinai uh, was not graciously bestowed. But for all that it was, and the main point uh, the writer's making is this, it was imperfect. It was imperfect. Uh, he points out that if the old covenant had been perfect, there would have been no need for a new covenant, but a new covenant was promised through Jeremiah. The covenant, the old covenant in itself was insufficient. It wasn't uh, insufficient in the sense that it failed to do what God intended it to do. God never intended that through the offering up of bulls and calves and sheep and so on that uh, people would be saved. These weren't the ultimate things on which we were to rest our faith those were designed to point away from themselves to the finished work of Jesus, the Lamb of God. The fault, what made it imperfect, what meant that it needed a new covenant, the fault lay in the people themselves. The old covenant could not bless people who were disobedient. The old covenant was weak because the people were weak. Its blessings were conditioned on obedience to the terms of the covenant. And time and time again, the people showed they had no appetite for obedience. They were repeatedly exposed as covenant breakers. And the very things that God threatened for disobedience came to pass in the exile from Israel. So, what made the new covenant better is not that the old covenant was uh, all legal and the new was grace. The old covenant was a gracious provision by God, but its benefit was conditional, conditioned on obedience. The law and the covenant were good. The weakness lay with the people. And that's why God says in the quote from Jeremiah, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. The old covenant was imperfect though also because it could only be provisional until Christ came. 
That's a huge point. It was all types and shadows. Reality hadn't come. But when reality, that is Jesus, came, the old covenant could no longer remain in force. And from, think about it, from the moment that the new covenant was announced, the old covenant was, you know, heading for obsolescence. It's like when a, a new model of a car is announced in the press, the existing model immediately uh, starts to lose value and starts heading for obsolescence. To use the orchard analogy, the old covenant was heading towards heritage status. It was going to be overtaken by the new covenant. Something better was on its way. The new covenant is better also than the old because it comes with the Holy Spirit. And these are wonderful verses uh, from Jeremiah about the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in people's lives in the new covenant. The Spirit now comes to all believers and transforms their desires and their spiritual appetites. You see, the, 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 the promises attached to the new of the Spirit, inward regeneration, obedience, knowledge of God, they are so different from the promises of the old, which were abundant harvest, national security, expansion, boundaries, and so on. Under this new covenant, the Holy Spirit comes and brings about the new birth. And the law becomes something that we desire to do. The law is written on our hearts. So it's not a case of old covenant law, cheerio, bad. It's a case of new covenant, Holy Spirit, law on the heart. A new desire to please God and a new enabling to do what the Lord requires. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. You see the difference between the external uh, relationship with the law. Very much like what we were talking about this morning. The Pharisees having this view of the law as something external. set of rules to keep or to, to get round by uh, subtlety. Now the law is written on the heart. There's a new desire to please God. A new inward motivation. The new covenant is the age of the spirit. The age when all God's people know the working of the spirit in their lives. That's the, that's the, that's the significance of the next quote from Jeremiah. And that's the significance of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, Joel's promise is fulfilled that uh, the young men and old men and the maidens and all of God's people will be prophets. In other words, the Spirit's ministry will be upon all the people of God. So the significance of Pentecost is not in the tongues and, and, and the, the phenomena. It's in the fact that the Spirit is poured out on all the people. There is this democratization of the Holy Spirit, not just on the few, but on all God's people. No longer will they teach their neighbours, says Jeremiah, or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. Every believer has now, because of the Spirit, given to each one direct knowledge of God. 
New covenant means that we are all now people of God, all who have faith in Christ, no longer based on nationality or whether one's circumcised or not. All are now in the family. I will be their God and they will be my people. And all of this, all these spiritual blessings of the new covenant rest upon the forgiveness of sins. The last part of Jeremiah's promise, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. These blessed words. These words thrill the heart of every believer. This is what our life with God is based upon. Jesus has dealt with our sin in a way that no animal sacrifice or priestly ritual could ever. We have our sin wiped out. We have the Holy Spirit to grant us a desire to please increasingly the Lord through obedience. And all of these benefits come to us only through Jesus. And this is the the cry of the heart from the, the writer. Why, oh why, he's saying, why would you turn back from Jesus? Why would you go back to the, the types and the shadows of the priesthood that were supposed to point to Jesus? Why would you forfeit spiritual blessing for hope of, of material blessing? That's a stark message to them. Move away from Jesus and everything of importance is lost. We need to be on our guard, don't we, in all kinds of ways against subtle subversion of the unique priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Christendom today, there are all kinds of uh, priestcraft with all kinds of mystical apparatus and incantations and ritual that would pretend to rival or substitute the priesthood of Jesus. There is only one priest. His work as a satisfaction for sin is finished and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne for majesty on high. Why would we turn to any other? Why would we give credence to any rival? And if not, surely we must honour the one great priest Give him all praise and render him all obedience and magnify his name as the only unrivaled, uniquely sufficient priest for sinners. May God bless to us his word.